Once again, I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here. It's always a, a pleasure to open God's Word for God's people. And we're continuing at, uh, in Zechariah uh, chapter 1. We'll read from verse 7 on to the end of the chapter. And you notice this is actually two visions uh, that are uh, encompassed in these words. Uh, uh, the first vision uh, from uh, 7 on to 17 is a vision of a horseman, as it's uh, titled here, and then a vision of horns and craftsmen. And they're fairly related, and so I'll be taking them together. Let's hear God's word. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shebat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse. He was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, Order these, my lord. The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord, who was standing among the myrtle trees, and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. Then the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem, and on the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these seventy years. And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion. I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are ease. For I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the Mezzanine shall be stretched out of Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah, so that no one raised his head. And they have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lift up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. In Romans 12, uh, a little later after the verse that you working on and is uh, a list of spiritual gifts. Those 
special talents that God gives to the members of a congregation to help it grow and prosper, to to have it uh, benefit the entire body. And so there's some things that we would naturally think about. What would we want in 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 a body to cause it to grow? Well, teaching is mentioned, and administration, and prophecy, and giving, and mercy. And it's easy to understand how all these things would contribute to the well-being of the body. They're each playing a critical role. But there's a, a gift there that we maybe would overlook. And that's the gift of encouragement or exhortation. Now, the Greek word is Paraclesis, and the related word is used in John 14, where Jesus talks about another helper, another comforter. It's that word paraclete, and it's used to to refer to the Holy Spirit. And the word is sometimes translated helper, or encourager, comforter, counselor, exhorter. And there's not one really good word in English uh, to to take in all the meaning of the Greek word, but it really has a sense of someone coming alongside to help. And so, along those other gifts that we think about teaching is this idea that encouragement is important to the church. That there needs to be encouragement going on. And we would understand that Encouragement really comes from God. That God is the one who encourages us through Jesus Christ. It's not the encouragement of the world that often encourages by saying, well, set your mind to it, and then you accomplish it. We have pictured in Scripture that God, the triune God, is an encourager. In uh, John 14, the Holy Spirit is called that encourager, that another encourager. And that implies that Jesus is the first encourager, the first comforter that's come. In Romans 15, a little later, the Father is referred to the God of endurance and encouragement. And in Philippians 2, 1, says if there's any encouragement in Christ, and of course the the implication is abundant encouragement in Christ, overwhelming encouragement in Christ. And so we see as it comes to the idea of encouragement, the Father encourages the church. Jesus Christ, the Son, encourages the church. The Holy Spirit is encourager of the church. It's because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. It's not because you or I are smarter than other people, nicer, had better sense of humor, or anything else, work harder on the job or in school. It's because we have continual fellowship with Jesus Christ. And the first two visions that we've read point out that God is the encourager of the church. That God encourages his church. And the first 
point, the first question you might have is, why do the people of God need encouragement? And we might apply it to ourselves, why do we need encouragement today? Well, as you would look at the vision, it's, it's about a, a man on a horse, and then there's some other horses. And the first thing we see is among a myrtle tree. Now, the myrtle trees were more like shrubs over in the Middle East. Uh, they were green, but they were small, and they would grow often by a stream, and very slowly. They'd be fragrant. They would have a good smell. But the contrast would be the, the cedars of Lebanon that were huge. It would stand out on the landscape. A myrtle tree was small and insignificant by, by contrast. If that's not bad enough in verse 8, we find out that myrtle tree is in a glen. You know, a hollow, a valley. It's down low. So not only is it small, but it's practically invisible. And the people would have understood. This is talking about our nation. This is what Israel is like now. No longer the glory days of, of King David and King Solomon. It's been a country that's been defeated. That's been destroyed that is living in poverty, that has no fences. Any marauding band can come through and attack. And so they would understand, understood that their lowliness of their position. And the myrtle tree grows slowly. And so as they would try to rebuild, it was going to be a a long, slow process. But steady process. Steady progress. And that would prove true. The walls were rebuilt for 75 more years until Nehemiah comes. And when he comes, one of the first things he does is go and inspect the city walls. And he's riding a donkey and he, he can't even go all the way around. There's so much ruin in his way. He has to get off and walk about to see the situation. And they had these large stones that had been burned with great heat. If you do that, they become brittle, they become useless, you can't use them as, as building blocks. So they'd have to be cleaned away. And so the task that was fa facing them was a very daunting task. And so it would be a little wonder that the people would be discouraged. As they know that God has called them to, to rebuild, to rebuild the temple first. And as there are enemies out there, Sandbelt and some others, who are constantly harassing them. Or perhaps today you're feeling 
some sort of discouragement. You could look at what's going on in the world around us, uh, the ongoing war between Russia and Ukraine, and wondering maybe what kind of world is your children and grandchildren going to grow up in? Maybe it's something more personal, something related to your family. As you look at inflation and tight budgets that people are, uh, loss of jobs. Maybe it's a rebellious child. Maybe it's a health problem. Or maybe it's something related to this, this congregation. You've had your senior pastor resign just recently. There have been some setbacks. It seemed like the, the winds are against you. Your heart's goal is to, is to reach out to people, to see people one to Christ, to be converted. And it seems like things are getting in the way. Things are sidetracking any progress. And you're wondering what's going on. So it'd be easy to be discouraged. And the third factor is to notice the date in verse 7. It's the 24th day of the 11th month of the second year of Darius. We can say that that's February 519. Now remember back, if you looked at that last week, the timeline, the activity of Haggai began in September and in October God promises to bless them from that point on and then Zechariah begins in November reinforcing it, the, the rebuilding. And so for about three or four months, the people have been rebuilding the temple. And most likely what they're trying to do is get rid of all the rubble to be able to rebuild. And so there's that initial enthusiasm. Let's go do it. But by now, the tiredness is setting in. You, know, you clear away one big stack of rubble and you don't have any earth movers. You're doing it by hand. What do you see? Well, there's another pile and another pile and another pile and another pile. It's going to take four years to complete the rebuilding of the temple. And in an agrarian society, February was a key month for planning and, and that warm a climate. The summer came quickly, and so you'd be getting your tools ready. You would be breeding your animals. If you, if you didn't plow in the fall, now you'd be plowing and planting seed. You'd be pruning back your vines and trees. And so you would know that you need to be doing that to, to provide for your family. And now you'd be torn between spending time on the temple and providing basic necessities. And you would feel some frustration maybe. So it was a busy time of the year. 
And so the people could be discouraged at the amount of work that's done, about the opposition, the enemies around, about uh, the, the work that they have to do for their families as well as for their Lord. Well, the second point is God encourages his church. And so how does God do that? Well, we can see three things that God does here to encourage his church. First, he reassures them. He reassures them that he's now with them. They are his people. And he's coming alongside to help. And the background I mentioned is Ezekiel 10. It's where God departs from the temple. God at that point was saying, I'm withdrawing my blessing. I'm no longer present with you the way I have been. You've sinned so heinously that you've destroyed that covenant relationship. Now, it wasn't permanent. But because of that, the temple could be destroyed. God's presence was no longer there. And so, notice the word behold in verse 8. It's pointing to one of the key ideas in this vision. And what are we to look at? Behold a man. Or we could maybe say a being. Because later on, that man is referred to as the angel of the Lord. It's not a normal human being. And the point is that God was now with his people. They're in this lowly condition, but now God is with them. And might mention it's in this passage and throughout Zechariah, really, there's mention of two different angels. There's the angel who speaks with me, and you'll see that several times in this chapter. But then there is the angel of the Lord. Not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. One particular one. An angel really means messenger, someone who comes representing God. And who is that angel of the Lord? Well, if you look throughout Zechariah and the Old Testament, it's just not an ordinary angel. It's an angel who has divine attributes you'll see at places. And I would submit to you, it's Jesus Christ before he was incarnate, before he was born as a baby. What was he doing? He was there in the Old Testament as the angel Lord, communicating God's truth to his people. And so we could say, Jesus is saying to his people at that point, I am with you. 
I withdrew from a time from you, but now I'm once again with you. I'm once again blessing you, protecting you, helping you, spiritually feeding you. That's what's necessary to be encouraged. I think sometimes, uh, you know, traveling with a small child and you stay in a hotel and the child wakes up in the middle of the night, doesn't know where they are and cries out. And then mom or dad says, I'm here. And the child settles down immediately. Because that's all they need to know is mom's here or dad's here. That's what we need to know. Christ is here. Christ is with his people. And think of the final words of Jesus as recorded in Matthew 28. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so the first encouragement is God is with his people, even in their lowly condition. Jesus Christ especially is seen as being with his people. The second uh, encouragement is really the nature of God. And there are two things that are sort of the points of these two visions. That God is, first of all, all-knowing, and then he's sovereign. He's in control of all things. And consider how important it is that God be both those things. All-knowing, and then has the power to deliver. Imagine me visiting you in the hospital and you say, well, I've got some pain in my abdomen. And I look at you and say, oh, it's got to be your appendix. And you wonder, well, what do you base that on? Well, you know, I had biology in 10th grade a few, few years, eight decades ago. Um, Nurse, can you get me a scalpel? Here, I'll just take it out. You won't have any more problems. Problem is I don't have any knowledge and I don't have any skill and I can't deliver on it. And I expect you would say, no, 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 no. I don't want any part of this. I want a doctor, someone who knows what they're talking about and has the skill to perform. Well, it's the same way here. God has the knowledge of what's going on. He also has the ability to follow through on it. And so as you look at verse 9, it's really speaking about God's knowledge. There are those who've gone out and are patrolling the earth to, to find out what's happening. And basically, the enemies of God's people are at rest. Now, does God need to send somebody out to find out what's happening in Babylon? Or in Jerusalem? Or Indianapolis? Or in Moscow? He knows all that. But it's written down for our sakes. And for those in Zechariah's day to emphasize God knows what's going on. And 
And what is pointed out is those people are at ease. And they're later on described in the second vision as those who have attacked God's people. They're at ease. They're enjoying their victory. They have harmed, and, it's, and as God says, I meant it a little, but you furthered it. They've gone much beyond what was necessary. And being at ease means that they're enjoying the fruits of their wickedness. And God is going to upset that. God is going to bring judgment upon them as they're at ease. And the second characteristic is God is all-powerful. He's controlling all things. He's directing what happens in human history. Now, it's seen in a couple of different ways in this passage. First is by the, the emphasis on the Lord of hosts. The Lord of armies. The covenant God is the one who has a whole host of forces at his disposal. And if you look, it's found in verse 12, verse 14, verse 16, verse 17, as well as uh, five times in the opening six verses. Nine times in this chapter, it's the Lord of hosts. And the point is, there's no power on earth can stand before the Lord of hosts. And if you go into, into Revelation 6, you see the idea of the horsemen again. And there are the for, there are forces that God unleashes on the earth and Includes like war and famine and disease. That God has a power to bring about the destruction of the wicked. And secondly, this truth is reinforced in the second vision. We have horns, four horns. The nations that have attacked the people of God. Now, a horn in the Old Testament was used to express the idea of strength. You know, the two animals would attack each other, and the one would have bigger antlers and more horns. It would be the stronger, the older and stronger one. And it became used to talk about the, the strength of an army, the strength of a kingdom. You know, the horn, the power. And the thinking is, well, if I come against you with uh, six armies and they each one have a horn and I signal and, and they sound the alarm to attack, that sounds great. Until you hear ten horns over there and ten horns over there and ten horns over there and twenty behind. Now you understand that I better try to find some terms of surrender because they're much too much for me. 
And here the picture is those horns, that power is destroyed. For each one of those horns, God has a, a craftsman, a part of his armies to destroy. And four probably represents the four directions. Saying whatever the enemy is, wherever he comes from, God is able to completely destroy. Their strength is nothing. And they're flattened. They can't make a sound. What encouragement to know that no enemy can overwhelm the people of God. No enemy can defeat the church of God because God is in their midst. God is in our midst. God is overwhelmingly powerful against any enemy. And the third encouragement is there in verse 12 where we see the angel Lord intercedes on behalf of the people. O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah? And you know, did you see who's, who's praying that? It's the angel of the Lord. Jesus Christ is the one who's praying for his people, praying for an end to the captivity, praying for the end of the temple laying in ruins. It reminds us of uh, the book of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. For Jesus Christ is our high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. Sure, Darius issued a decree and permitted the Jews to go back home. But it's Jesus Christ who prayed for the end of the captivity and for the restoration of God's people and peace with God. We need to keep that promise in mind that that Jesus Christ is praying continually for us. Right now, Jesus Christ is in heaven praying for me as I preach. That's the only reason I dare ever stand up here. Right now, Jesus Christ is praying for you in how you listen. For what your heart response will be to his word. He's praying for the well-being of the church. That it be a light in a dark world. That you would see men and women and boys and girls come to faith, be converted. He's paying for the peace and prosperity of the church. 
he's praying as it talks about in the vision for mercy and grace to abound to his people. And we know that that prayer is answered. And how do we know? Well, there's a bit of irony here. How does this prayer get answered? The one who prays it is the one who accomplishes it. It's because of Jesus Christ. Because 500 years later, that angel Lord becomes the God-man who walks around that rebuilt temple who shows to men and women who are in darkness the path of life. Shows that he is the light of the world. That he is the way to eternal life. And he is the one that is going to be crucified outside those walls that are not going to be built for 75 more years. To be an offering for our sins. So that we can receive peace with God, mercy, and grace. And so as he prays, he's the ultimate fulfillment of that. And as we consider that, why should we ever be discouraged? Why should we be disheartened by anything going on around us? And the application is to be encouraged. In difficult times, and things that would cause us to be discouraged, to keep in mind, God is in the midst of his people. We may wonder at times, but the promise is sure. Jesus said, behold, I will be with you to the end of the age. Second, to be encouraged that God knows all that's going on. He knows what's going on in your life. The things that would frustrate or discourage in the congregation's life, in our nation, and indeed the world. They're all known. And God is one who's all-powerful. Not only does he know, but he defeats all of Christ's enemies, all of our enemies. And most of all, be encouraged that Jesus Christ is praying for you. He knows the issues in your life. And even now, lives to make intercession for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the truths of Scripture we see here. 
that you really delight in, in being with your people? That you know all that's going on and it's all part of your plan? And at times we can look at our uh, circumstances and, and wonder what's going on. We can feel discouraged, disheartened, and yet when we look upward, when we look to you, we realize nothing happens by chance, but according to your good will, as you control all things, and even more than that, as we understand that Christ is praying for us, as we may not even know what to pray. We may not even see some of the great issues facing us, but he does. And he prays for us always. Thank you for that. Encourage us with the knowledge of those, those truths. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.